Welcome to the Tuesday Theology edition of the Scottsdale Podcast. At Scottsdale, one of our core values is studying God's Word. So through this theology class, our goal is to equip our people with the right knowledge of God. Enjoy, and we hope that you grow in your knowledge of God and application of His Word. So let's get on our, our, our lesson tonight. We're doing two in one, but it's just one chapter. It's justification and adoption. And we're dealing with that. The adoption in your chapter is very small because it's like people don't really have a problem with that. Um, and I really don't think people have a problem with justification. I think most of us understand that. And so this may be a shorter lesson tonight, but I want to take you to where we've been. As we began working through this, we talked about the order of salvation. He lays this out and kind of helps us to see this. You remember we started with election and that's from eternity past. That's God's sovereign choice is what we talked about. So election is God's doing in eternity past. Then we move to the second part of that, which was the gospel call. We talked about the effectual call and the general call. The general call goes out to all humanity, calling on people to repent and believe. But the effectual call is that call where the Holy Spirit has begun doing the work in a person's life and they're beginning to hear the message in a way that they've never really known before. Remember, Paul talks about the spiritual things are spiritually discerned and they have to be spiritually discerned by spiritually minded people. Uh, so we see that. And then regeneration comes along. Regeneration is that where we talked about God doesn't just renovate our heart. What does he do? He regenerates our heart. He gives us a new heart. He begins working in our hearts and our minds. And then he brings about this new regeneration, which is called born again. And then there's conversion, which is the response of faith and repentance. Now, People get confused about this sometimes. They want to argue which comes first. Does conversion come first? Does regeneration come first? Does regeneration come first? A lot of times they work simultaneously. And the thing what we don't see here is there's no timeline. Sometimes for some people, and I've seen this, the process of regeneration takes longer. A person might be working through some things for a long time and the Spirit of God might be carrying them along for many times or months even. And then there's some people where it happens really quick. Like for me, it happened really fast. I mean, it was just a matter of, hey, I went to this church one night because somebody invited me. I didn't go for Jesus. I went for a girl. That's why I went. And when I left there, I had Jesus and a girl. So, uh, so that night, it just happened really fast for me. And it was just something that was quick. And now we get to what follows conversion. The thing is this, God loves us so much that he does this work in us. And he brings us to this place where we respond in faith um, and demonstrating repentance. But then we deal with this issue of justification. And justification is that right legal standing with God. God doesn't leave us in the state that we are just converted. But what does he do? He does something additional. And this is a very, very important doctrine in a Christian's life. A lot of times what we do is we kind of walk right past this. And then we're going to talk about adoption, just how that flows. But here's what I want you to know, that this was such a huge debate that this was the issue of justification was a debate during the Reformation between Martin Luther and the reformers and the Catholic Church. And you've read a little bit about that tonight um, from your book. 
But when we deal with justification, Martin Luther writes this about it, how important it is. He says, this article is the head and cornerstone of the church, which alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and protects the church. Without it, the church of God cannot subsist one hour. He's talking about the absolute importance of understanding justification by faith. Matter of fact, that was the key doctrine that God used in Martin Luther's life. And as he led the entire Reformation moving along this concept, Sinclair B. Ferguson writes this, who's a great theologian and preacher. He says, when the child of God loses his sense of peace with God, finds his concern for others dried up, or genuinely finds his sense of the sheer goodness and grace of God diminished, it is from this fountain that he ceases to drink. He loses sight of the meaning of, the just, of justification by faith. So tonight, what we want to do is we want to be able to look at what does that mean? What does it mean to um, walk in justification by faith? Um, so as you look at your book, he gives you that one definition. And that definition that he lays out for us is just simply this. And I broke it down into two points parts because he breaks it down into two parts, but I just wanted to make it a little bit more clearly for you. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. So those are the two things that he does. It's interesting that I've never really put it in the way that he's put that first point before. Most of the time when we talk about justification, we talk about it as declaring us to be righteous in his sight. But it does go to that, that point that our sins are forgiven and Christ's righteousness belongs to us. We're going to look at those two things tonight and kind of break that down and say, okay, what does that really mean for us? And how is that practical for where we live every day? Justification is something that is very, very practical. Now, he begins by doing this. He says, justification includes a legal declaration by God. Okay. Then he says this, it means to declare as righteous. It is to declare as righteous. But here's what it's not. It's not to make as righteous. Now, to declare as righteous is one thing. He's not saying that you are made righteous in your moral character and is something that changes inside of you. That's not what justification is. Let me give you a picture of it. It'd be like a judge and a judge in a court of law declares a person to be innocent. He's declaring them to be innocent. They may even be guilty. They may be a person that is guilty of a crime, but he makes a declaration that they're innocent. He's not saying that there anything changes about their moral character. There's not anything that necessarily is changing about their internal person. They're not that because they deserved to be that. It's just a simply a declaration. And so when we talk about God justifying us, God is making a declaration because of a relationship in Christ. Now, remember, we're talking about believers, those who have been converted. And once a person has been converted through faith in Christ 
and the repentance of their sins, the next act comes God's declaration that they are righteous. Now, he gives a number of scriptures with that. And um, if we were all like Mark, we'd all gone to the references and looked at all of those. Now, how many of us, let's be honest, it's real easy for us not to look at the references, you know. And a lot of times we won't even read the scripture itself in there because we want to get to the other stuff, which was the only part of this whole book that's inspired is the scripture. And so those are the things that we should be reading through. And so when he says that we're to declare as righteous, he puts this statement up there and I kind of added a little bit to it. Regeneration is an act of God in us. Okay, God regenerates us. He transforms and he gives us a new heart. Regeneration is an act of God in us. Justification is a judgment of God with respect to us. He's already done the changing work in us. And now what is he doing? He's declaring that we are something which is righteous. And then I added this. Regeneration does something in us. Justification does something for us. And so the first thing is it's a legal act. It is something that God does. But the second thing we see in here is that God declares us to be just in his sight. He declares us to be just in his sight. And he breaks this down. He says that when God declares us to be just, there are two things that he's looking at. Number one, to declare we have no penalty to pay. There's no penalty for us to pay. Jesus paid it on a cross, right? And so we're declared that we're righteous. But the second thing is we're righteous in his sight. And that's why Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God looks at us and declares us, you're righteous. But then he says, you're also righteous in my sight. There's no penalty that you have to pay. But the second part of that is this, to declare that we have merits of perfect righteousness or, or perfect righteousness in his sight. I put it a little different in my notes. To declare we're actually righteous, I would say to have perfect righteousness in his sight. And that merit that we have comes from our relationship with Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, God declares us to be righteous. On the other hand, God declares that uh, for us to be just in his sight. But then the third thing is this. God can declare us to be just because he imputes Christ's righteousness to us. Now, this is where it gets a little bit more, a little bit more difficult. He imputes his righteousness to us. When he says he imputes his righteousness to us, this is like thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. It means this. It's credited to us. The righteousness of Christ is credited in our account. It's like if you have an account and God, because of your faith in Christ, he declares this person is righteous because of the work of my son on the cross. I recognize it and there is no debt to be paid there and is right. He's righteous or she is righteous in my sight. But not only that, I'm going to impute the righteousness of Christ um, in their life. That instead of seeing them, what I end up seeing always is the righteousness of Christ. It's credited. Remember, it says Abraham, it was, re he, it was reckoned that he was righteous because of his faith. It was put into his account because of that. Now, 
It's really interesting. This thing imputed is seen through the pages of Scripture at least three times. Number one, Adam's sin was imputed to us. Remember in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says that one man sinned, therefore all have sinned. It talks about his sin is imputed to us. Every one of us has the original sin of Adam and Eve within us. Adam's sin was imputed to us. Our sins were imputed to Jesus on the cross. You see, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin. Whose sin did he become? Ours. So our sins were imputed to him on the cross. And finally, Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us at our conversion. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become what? The righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so what we see is this whole picture of justification by faith. Now, we're getting to the faith part, but this part of being justified is very, very important. Have you ever heard somebody use the phrase, justification is just as though you never sinned? Have you ever heard that? Yeah, that's true to a degree. But the bigger picture is this. Justification happens in spite of my sin. There's not anything in and of myself that God would have justified me for. There's nothing about my goodness. There's nothing about my personhood. There's nothing about my works. There's nothing about my accomplishments. The justification that I receive is simply by the grace of God and his goodness in my life. And it's not just as though I had never sinned. Justification is that God, in my brokenness and sinfulness, in Christ Jesus, counts me as righteous. And the righteousness of Jesus is imputed into my account on my behalf. So here's a wonderful thing. When God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Christ in you. Not because you deserved it, not because you've earned it, but because God has declared it to be so. And as you have surrendered your life to Christ, that is imputed into you. Now, you remember there's a difference between what the Roman Catholics taught and what uh, Protestants thought. There were two different words. Protestants, we teach that, that, that this righteousness is imputed. What do the Catholics teach? Do you remember? Yeah, infused. Works infused. Somebody tell me the difference between the two. What's the difference between being imputed and infused? What's that? I never heard imputed before. Oh, you never heard it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The imputed is you get credit on somebody else's behalf. The infused in, in the Catholic doctrine says, no, when you're justified, God puts his righteousness in you and you are changed morally. 
And as you are changed morally, then what happens is there's something about you. It's kind of like a mixture of this. God's grace, but your merit. But the problem with that is you can never know how much of God's grace you're getting and how much is your merit. And so when it comes to justification, it is clearly a work of God by his grace in our lives. And so this is one of those things that that as we deal with this issue of imputed and this thing of infused, God doesn't just infuse his presence in us in that way. What God does is he counts us as righteous because of the work of Christ on the cross. I'm counted as righteous because of the work of Christ on the cross. God declares me to be righteous. He sees that I'm righteous and the righteousness that he sees in me is not mine. It's always the righteousness of Jesus. So when when God looks at you and me, he sees us as individuals because he's known us from eternity past. But in Christ, he doesn't see us apart from Jesus. And that's a wonderful picture that we see. Now, do we always feel like that, that we're so connected to Christ? No, we don't. Sometimes, sometimes we feel that God's punishment may even still be on us in some areas of our life. But what we're going to find is that because of the justification, God will never, ever call us to repay for our sinful deeds of the past because Jesus has already done it on the cross. And that's where we're absolutely secured in that. Imputed means that that God sees Christ's righteousness in us, even though we have no righteousness on our own. Infused means that God puts his righteousness in us and changes our moral character um, so that we can be different. Those are the two differences. The last thing he does, or he talks in here about justification, is he says this. Justification comes to us entirely by God's grace. Comes entirely by God's grace. In Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, the Apostle Paul says these words. He says, for all have sinned, and what? Fall short of the glory of God. That's interesting. We learn that verse. But most of the time, we don't go past that verse. Listen to what it says in verse 24. I'll go back to 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. See, there's a second part of that that we really need to see. We all know that all have fallen short of the glory of God. But for those who are in Christ, he says they're justified as a gift of God's grace, counted as righteous by him. Now, God justifies us through our faith in Christ. And there are four things that he points about. He says faith is an instrument to obtain justification, but has no merit in itself. What does that mean? Faith is important, but it has no merit just in and of itself. That God chooses to use faith because it's justification by faith. But if faith uh, is important, what does it mean when he says it has no merit by itself? Doesn't earn you anything? 
Okay? It's your faith doesn't necessarily earn you salvation, although faith is important in the process of salvation. Because without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. All right? I don't know if it's a good illustration or not, but I like it. Faith uh, is kind of like the channel or the byway between uh, us and salvation. I think it comes out in a way Abraham's faith is described as being fully convinced that God was able to do what he has promised. So the merit is in the promise and what God and what Christ has done for us. And faith is just the, the channel for that. Okay. I don't know if that makes sense to anybody else. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Now, here's the thing. Faith, you can't have faith in faith. There are a lot of people who have faith in faith, but that's not saving faith. And so faith is not a merit in and of itself, uh, but it is that channel, and it's the channel that God uses to be able to do it. And the reason faith is not a merit in itself is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. What's the next part? Okay. That's not of yourself, it's the gift of God. What's not of yourself? Even the faith. Why I say that? Because God is one, as he's working through the process of salvation, changing my heart and my mind, also gives me the ability to have faith. When you look at faith in the New Testament, the word is always in a passive voice, which means it's something done to you, not something you do to yourself or to someone else. So even the faith is not a merit in the sense that you earn this and do this. But God in his goodness and his grace, as he's walking through that process of salvation with you, even the faith becomes a part of his marvelous gift to us. Now, the second thing he says is this. Why did God choose faith as the instrument for receiving justification? Justification by faith. Why is faith the channel, the instrument? Question. Yes. Defining faith. Are we defining it as trust and belief? Yes. Okay. We're, that's exactly right. Yeah, we are. Which is an important answer to know for this, this question. Okay, yeah, that's good. Whenever a person places their faith in Christ, what are they admitting? It's exactly right. I can't do this on my own. I can't make my life righteous. I cannot make myself justified before God. So faith is that avenue by which God himself works through us and we surrender ourselves to him, going back to that area of trust. So faith is really important in this. Now, here's, here's a big one. What does James mean by saying that we are justified by works? I don't know if you looked that up, but in James chapter 2, verse 24, he talks about that... Um, Faith is justified by works. Now, here's the struggle. 
is that the Apostle Paul has been telling us that no works will justify you. You are justified by faith alone. So you got Paul talking over here. Justification comes by faith alone. James is over here. No, you're justified by your works. Are these two guys contradicting one another? No. Okay. Uh, justified, uh, be justified by your works is when you come to believe in Christ and that regeneration has taken place in your heart, it changes you till you perform those works okay. that he's talking about. Not that you have to. It's, it's that you want to. Because you have come to the realization what Christ has done for you on the cross and the gift that God has gave you uh, in Christ that instead of feeling like I have to help my neighbor, I want to help my neighbor because of what he has done for me. Okay. It is the right thing to do. And I know that inside. Okay, so the outflowing of a life that has been changed is going to demonstrate works. Okay. Yeah, I, I uh, totally agree with that. Uh, but also, the context is really significant for James. I think um, you know, ESV adds a little header. I'm not in the scripture. It says, "Faith without works is dead," and that's important to uh, I think just to orient your mind about what James is talking about. If you go back to verse 19, it says, You believe in mm -hmm. God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So here's the, here's what James is getting at, because these are people who profess to be Christians. He's saying it's not just easy believism. You can't just say it and then nothing, there's no fruit. Mm -hmm. And I also want to point out, I'm a little stickler for words, uh, but James 2.24, and actually previously in verse 22, he says, he starts the verse out by saying, You see that. So he's actually not using the same verbiage that Paul is by saying that, that we are justified uh, by works. He's just saying that you see, and his example was Abraham, right? Mm -hmm. He saw that Abraham did something. There was some fruit to his faith. He's actually showing that I will see that someone is justified. Mm -hmm. There will be fruit. And I don't, I don't think it's, I think the context and the words he's using are bear that out. I think, yeah, that's right. And now here's the thing we need to remember about when we're justified. There are two kinds of righteousness in Scripture. One is a positional righteousness because of who I am in Christ. I am justified by faith positionally in Jesus. And so if I'm justified by faith positionally, it is not of any kind of works that I've ever done to get there. But it's been by God's declaration that I am righteous. So there's a positional righteousness. Paul is coming from a positional righteousness. Why? He's fighting the Judaizers. And the Judaizers are telling everyone, no, you've got to live by the law. And it's the law that makes you righteous. And so Paul is fighting the Judaizers in this positional righteousness. And he says, no, you shall be justified by faith, not of the works of the law. Then you got James over here. He's teaching a different kind of righteousness here because Paul is talking positional righteousness, but there's also a practical righteousness. 
And the practical righteousness is the righteousness of Christ that's not only been imputed into me, but is worked out of me. And who is James dealing with? He's dealing with people who are professing to be Christians, but have no fruit in their life. So really, one scholar puts it this way. It's like you've got Paul and James fighting different enemies back to back. And here is James fighting those who profess to be Christians, but have no practical righteousness. And here is Paul fighting these people who proclaim to be godly, but have no positional righteousness. And so they're both standing back to back fighting different enemies with the same argument from a different perspective. So there's no contradiction at all in there. But you're talking about that. Now, here's the thing that we always need to remember. Justification by faith is both positional and practical. And I think that what one of the things that we need to remember as we study this and apply this to our lives is that I do say that I can stand positionally, not by my merit, but by the merit of Christ on the cross. And so I can have full confidence standing before God positionally. I am counted and seen as righteous. Practically, I need to live righteously. And the righteousness of Christ that's in me needs to flow out of me into the lives of other people. And then there's the balance that we find between both Paul and dealing with James at the same time. Now, there's some practical implications of justification by faith alone, too. And um, I, don't, I don't know if I got these on there, but there are three things that I wrote down that he covers in the book. Practical implications are, number one, I got two things. It offers genuine hope to unbelievers in that um, who know that they can never make themselves righteous before God. When we talk to people about justification, it can help people to understand, you know what? It's not up to you to earn your way to be right with God. Jesus has already done that for you on the cross. He's accomplished a work. And as you commit your life to Christ, then you can experience this, this imputed righteousness in your own life. But the second thing it does is God will never make us pay for sins that have been forgiven in Jesus. That's an incredible, wonderful, freeing thing. I know people today who still struggle from sins of the past. They're Christians. And they beat themselves up over it. And they keep going back to those things. And it's as though the Father says, what are you talking about? I've already put that under the blood of Christ. And by the way, a lot of people will plead the blood... The blood is for atonement. <laughs> and a lot of people will plead the blood for a lot. I plead the blood over that car. I plead the blood of No, the blood of Jesus is for atonement and for the covering of our sin. And so those sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ. So the freedom that we can have as we walk in this is to know that God sees me as he sees his son Jesus and he's accredited to me that righteousness. It's both positional, but it's also practical. And then that's where I can walk that out. Now, let me ask you this question. As you've worked through this chapter, are there any questions that you have dealing with this?
any questions dealing with or comments that you might want to make that you've learned as you've read through this issue of justification by faith. I think you did a good job of explaining James' comments in James chapter 2. Thanks for clarifying that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, the Bible just contradicts each other. But when you, you, you've got to be able to dig in. And and as James said, the, the, the context of the passages help us to understand what really is going on in that, in that environment. Um, yes. So if, if you were, and I, and I grew up Catholic, but if you were talking with a person that was Catholic and they pointed out that verse to you that James was speaking of um, to believers, how, how, how would you, in a loving way, explain that to someone that thought all their works were, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think I would do exactly what I explained to us in the sense that, that there, there are two different positions here, um, maybe two different perspectives of the way they're arguing the same thing. Um, and I think putting it in the context of what James was having to deal with. Um, there were people who were saying, of course, they're believers, but there's no fruit in their life. Um, um, and I think that what happens is, too, when people are getting involved in working, 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 you see, I do this, I do this, I do this. There are plenty of other scriptures, too. You can take them and show them that Isaiah says, you know, our best works are as filthy rags to God, that we are never received by simply our works, but it's always the work of Christ on the cross. And I always take them to the cross and take them to what Jesus did for us on the cross. And then I take them to most of Paul's writings about justified by faith and not by works um, and helping th- th- those positions. I, I, would, I would reference Romans 3, uh, Romans 3.20 especially um, for by works of the law no human being will be or was it, uh, no human being will be justified in the sight. Yeah. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. I mean it's just it's too direct to me. Yeah, and, and the biggest thing is building that relationship with them, walking through. Now, here's one of the things that I've learned because having grown up as a Catholic, I know that you never really debate Catholic doctrine or come debate the authority of the church. Always go to the Word of God and take them to the Scriptures because more times than not, the, the Catholics that I've known and that I've been accustomed to dealing with don't really know the Word of God. So you take them to there. And when I take them to Mark and show them that Jesus had brothers and at least two sisters, man, it blows them away. It's like, what? No, I, Jesus didn't have any brothers and siblings. Well, four of them are named. And he said his sisters, so there were at least two sisters. Um, but it's just taking people to the Word of God. And I do think this. I think the more that we learn these things. Now, you're probably not going to be in a conversation tomorrow in the grocery line about justification by faith. You're probably not. Unless you started. Hey, are you justified by faith? Well, let me tell you about what imputed righteousness right now. You know, now I would say go practice that on each other. But, you know, we don't typically do this. However, the point of it is every time you hear somebody talking about a works-oriented salvation, boom, there's your opportunity 
to be able to, to speak into that and say, no, 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 that's not what God's Word teaches. Um, take them to the cross. Take them to what, what, what Christ has done for them. Now, let's, let's be honest. All of us have a little bit of Martha in us. Remember Martha and Mary? Martha's always wanting to help Jesus out, isn't she? Do we have any Marthas in this room? Huh? Uh, okay, we got a few Marthas in here. Uh, got any Marys in the room? You just like to sit around all the time? No. It's okay sitting around as long as you're at the feet of Jesus, right? Yeah. But, um, but we, we all want to do things. And sometimes we feel like, what, how many times do we ask the Lord, Lord, what can I just do for you today? What can I do for you today? And he might say, just obey me. Obey me. Sit at my feet. Listen to me. Don't worry about all that other stuff. I, I've got it. And because sometimes we say, yeah, yeah, justified by faith. But sometimes there's something within us that says, but I feel like I still got to earn some of this. And that's the thing that goes against everything of our human nature. Uh, because we feel like we have to do something. Now, we do have to walk in obedience. We do have to work out our salvation in fear and trembling as we walk alongside of the Lord Jesus. But most of it is just leaning and trusting. Now, here's the last part he talks about is adoption. I love adoption. I love this. We're not going to go long in it because it's a very short chapter. Adoption, just simply, here's the definition is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. Could God have forgiven us and justified us without adopting us? He could have. What does it say to you that God would not only send his son, he would not only send his spirit to work in you, bring the process of regeneration, conversion, justification and adopt you. What's that say to you about how much God loves you? What's that say about how special you are to God? Yeah. Because we're His children. Now, here's the misnomer. We, we live in a world where everybody's children of God. Biblically speaking, that's not true. We're all creation of God. And God has a love for His creation as we have seen. But only those who have come through a relationship with Christ and going through this process and God has adopted us are we his children. We are his sons and his daughters. And, uh, and we all are, which means we're brothers and sisters. Somebody said, why does a fight, the church fight so much? I said, because they're brothers and sisters. <laughs> That's why. Uh, and we're brothers and sisters of the living God. And he has brought us into his family. Now, this whole process of adoption in, in this Roman world was totally different than our world. They didn't adopt infants in that world. You know that? They didn't adopt infants. They adopted full-grown people. Why? Because they needed somebody to be their heirs. And so they would adopt young men and young women. They didn't adopt infants. But what we find in here is that God is adopting people. And he adopts those. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. Ephesians 1.5 says that he predestined us in love to the adoption of his sons and daughters. 
We find in Romans 8, 14, 8, 14 through 17, whereby we, we cry out, Abba, Father. And that, that, that word in Aramaic means daddy, daddy. Jesus blew the world away, the Jews away, when he taught the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which was really our daddy. They had never heard that reference to God. Now, it is true that in the Old Testament, there are a few references of God as father, but he's a father of Israel. But in the New Testament, he's the father of people. And it's intimate. Think about this. You have father, you have dad, and you have daddy. And you get intimate in that tone. I, we, Chris and I have a dear sister in the Lord, a friend of ours, that when she prays, she always prays, Daddy God. Daddy God. Makes people feel uncomfortable. Well, hey, you just called him Daddy? Well, that's kind of what Jesus did when the Jews heard him say that. And so it's this intimate thing. In John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, which means wow. Behold, what manner of love the Father has shown to us that we should be called the sons and daughters of God. And such we are. I love that. What manner of love? The picture is this. What kind of love that's out of this world would love us to that degree? And so the fact that God would adopt you and me into his family demonstrates so much the depth of his love for us. Is there anybody in here who has adopted a child? You have an adopted child? Okay. Yes, you do. Okay. That, that is a great love. When you adopt a child, biologically that's not yours, but you have chosen to put your love on this child. Of all the children you could have had, you've adopted that child. And you've placed your love on that child. And that is a, a clear picture of God's just love for us. But also, if you talk to that child that has been adopted, is there anybody here who has been adopted? Then you can see that there's a special kind of love there that, wow, they could have had anybody, but they've chosen me to love me. And it's that kind of unique, intimate love that we have with the Father. So justification and adoption flow Hand in hand. I'm out of time, but here's the last thing I want to ask you. As you looked at this lesson tonight of justification, what was something encouraging to you that as you read through this book or you listened to this talk, what was encouraging to you about justification? Anything stand out? Mm. I don't have, I don't, you know, like it says in, at the end of Jude, I stand before God with great joy. Yeah. Not because of myself, but because He has declared me righteous. When the God of the universe declares you to be something, it's kind of hard to argue with Him, huh? Isn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> and then to know that one day I will stand before Him. And what he will see is the righteousness of Jesus. Wow. And to know that I can go through my life even now, even though I don't always feel like that, to know that that's a reality. That is incredible joy. It gives 
Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Anybody else? I've just been awed by God's grace mm. during this whole process. Yeah. Learning about different steps and everything. Yeah, I am too. His grace abounds. What stands out for you about adoption? We didn't get much into that, but you don't have to go deep into it. I can't, I can't, we can't fathom the depth of God's love for us. We really just can't. But one day we'll be able to be in his presence and experience that. The other thing is we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have an obligation with one another as believers to walk with one another in a way where our daddy would be happy. You know, nothing grieves your heart more than when your children are fighting. And, and you walk in there and you break up a fight. And you're thinking, what are you guys doing? Why are y'all fighting? Don't you know your brother and sister? And yet, sometimes we tend to do the same thing and we forget who our father is. And if we were to remember that. You know, it's always interesting. When daddy walks in a room, fights break up. They break up. You know, we would be mindful that our Father is with us and to remind, let's walk as brothers and sisters. One of the things that has struck me about my, my wife is that she is also my sister in the Lord. And she is the daughter of God. And if I mistreat the daughter of God, then I'm, I am not just mistreating my wife, I'm, retreating, I'm mistreating his daughter. And I used to tell my kids, you're not just mistreating your mama, you're mistreating my wife. And nobody talks to my wife like that. Your eyes would get big. (laughs) Except for me. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. So let's pray, close out, and thank God for this. And we want to pray for the people in Ukraine, our brothers and sisters in, in the Ukraine. There are churches that have chosen to stay there so that they can minister. Um... And in this, under this ruthless, evil dictator who is murdering women and children. And um, I just pray that God would, would um, create confusion and interrupt every bit of that and destroy the evil plots there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that the more we study your word, Father, and the depths that we get into it, we can see things about your nature and your love for us that we may not have seen before. And so, Father, as we continue to study and look, we ask that you would use this to set us free. And, Father, to give us great joy to walk with you. And, Father, to share the truth with others. Thank you for the enlightenment that you are bringing to our hearts and our minds. And, Father, you never bring this to us just simply for information's sake. But, Father, you give us this for inspiration 
that, Father, we might love you more, that we might seek to know you more, and, Father, that we might share this good news with others who need to learn about the, the truth and the love of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. We ask, Father, that you would protect them as I watch the images on television of the countless little children who have been separated from their parents and may never see them again. I do pray, Father, that you would watch over those little children. And, Father, you would demonstrate special mercy and kindness to them. And, Father, just as you love your children, I pray, Father, that you would demonstrate your mercy and your compassion over them. I ask, Father, that you would put them in safe places. And, Father, places where they will be in homes where they will come to know about Jesus and your love for them. I ask, Father, for those who are fighting and those who are trying to protect their homeland and to protect their neighbors and, Father, protect their churches. I ask, Father, that you would give them great favor. And I ask, Father, that you would disrupt the plans of Russia's president and their, their generals and their military. I pray, Father, that you would cause their weapons to completely fail. I pray, Father, that there would be no weapon formed against your people that would stand as they stay and minister and love and, and um, demonstrate compassion and kindness in the midst of a broken, violent world. Father, we know that if this grieves our heart by what we see, we can only imagine what it does to you as a holy God. And I pray, Father, that in the midst of all of this, that the nations would praise you. And Father, they would declare your greatness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that this teaching has enriched your understanding of God. If you found this teaching to be helpful, share it with your friends and family on social media and tag us at Scott's Hill. Till next time.